If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jenikin. What's up? <laughs> I'm ready for your episode. Okay. Do you want to do the Patreon uh, shout outs? Yeah, let's give a shout out to the people who subscribe to our Patreon. Patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. For as little as $5 a month. Not only do you get ad-free episodes, but you also get a lot of bonus content, bonus episodes, movie recaps. After show? After shows where we discuss current things happening. Yeah. A a variety of things in the after show, whatever we feel like talking about. Could be anything. Sometimes... Stuff that's too spicy for the main feed. Ooh. It could be. You should go and check it out. See if it's right for you. Yeah. Anyway, let's thank Jonathan, Acacia, Victor, Mary Beth, Jessica, Cassandra, Jamila, Matthew, Kayla, Cecilia, Janine, Amanda, Shady, Web crawlers. Oh, special, special shout out to web crawlers. Hi, web crawlers. Fellow bimbos in podcasting. Yeah, go to go check them out. Part of the dumb bitch network. Absolutely. Colleen, Rose, Aaron, Ash, Henrietta, Timothy, Astrum, Christine, Anna, Ava, Heather, Jennifer, Chelsea, and Misha. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Desi, what do you have for us this week? Well, so this week I thought I'd continue down the road of Los Angeles's historical locations that have a more sinister past than you might think. Mm. This week we will be talking about Crossroads of the World. (gasps) Do you know Crossroads of the World? Yeah. This is widely considered to be the first open-air shopping mall. It is located on Sunset Boulevard and Las Palmas. And you might have noticed the building. It looks a lot like an ocean liner. Uh, It's sort of in the center and surrounded by smaller buildings and bungalows. On top of the ocean liner-like building is a large tower with a with a big globe on top, indicating to you the worldly wonders you are about to discover. Or were, since now it's mostly office spaces. Yeah. So while the location still exists today, as I mentioned, it's a far cry from what it once was when it opened in 1936. As with many things in Hollywood, the almost movie set fantasy facade of Crossroads of the World is hiding a much darker underbelly full of crime and corruption. What? (laughs) So I used numerous old newspapers... For this one, uh, as well as um, some information I got from the LA Conservancy website on a, on this historic location. So let's get into it. Widow Ella Crawford had a dream. She wanted to merge commerce and fantasy. She also had money and a plot of land she inherited from her husband, and she really wanted to turn her grief into a wholehearted devotion into achieving this vision she had. She was going to spare no expense in its creation. Uh, 
She actually hired a very well-known um, sort of world-renowned architect named Robert V. Dara. He was a proponent of an architectural style known as Streamline Modern, which is sort of an offshoot of Art Deco. And it is what it sounds like. It's heavily influenced by the ocean liners of the day. The buildings have sort of these rounded corners and nautical influences, including windows that look like little portholes. Another famous example of this also designed by Dara is the Coca-Cola building downtown. And he also contributed to the making of the Fairfax Farmer's Market as well. Wow. His work is all over uh, Los Angeles. Uh, Crosswords of the World was completed in 1936, and the building was really... Um, indic- I'm sorry, the building of it was indicative of what was really popular in Hollywood commercial development at the time, making strong architectural choices and combining it with some worldly vibes. Uh, they also had a theme, and that was pretty big back then too. Um, they wanted to appeal to the rich and the not-so-rich. Maybe you couldn't afford to travel by ocean liner to the ports of the world, accessing exotic luxury items, but you could visit this international bazaar that was straight from a Hollywood movie set. This was a welcome adventure to many during the Great Depression. And this is a precursor to the Grove in the Americana. It's like the piped in music. The Grove has like the fountains and chandeliers are literally just hanging in the air, giving this access of perceived luxury to the masses. Mm. So it really reminded me a lot of that, even though it's smaller. This is a precursor to the Grove and the Americana. Right? Where you walk in and it's like its own little world yeah. kind of thing. And they have whatever Michael Buble it's just piped always in. playing constantly. Yeah. <laughs> so as I mentioned, the centerpiece of this bazaar was this ocean liner building, and it was surrounded by a village that featured architectural styles from around the world. Um, The ship appears to be sailing down the center as it travels the world. On opening day, it was covered like it was a movie premiere with stars from around the world attending, including Cesar Romero, who was representing Cuba, and Boris Karloff, representing England. It was widely hailed as a success. It was a must-visit landmark destination and was featured in several architectural journals. But what many didn't know was that the location had been the site of an infamous murder that took place just a few years before. (gasps) The victim, Ella's husband, Charles Crawford. What? Right? (laughs) And she built her thing there? Yes. (laughs) Desi, that's crazy. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. So who is Charles Crawford? Charles Crawford got his start in Seattle during the Klondike Gold Rush, and he pretty much operated casinos, bordellos. He was in that line of work, (laughs) making money with vices. Sounds cool. Yeah. He eventually makes his way into politics. And by that, I mean paying politicians off to get what he wanted. He eventually has the mayor of Seattle in his pocket as well. Now, when this mayor and another city official get basically charged on corruption, get, get corruption charges like lobbied against them, Another mayor comes in in 1910. He's like a reform mayor, and he immediately begins investigating into Charles and all of his activities. At that point, Charles and some of his cohorts hightail it out of Seattle and settle down in Los Angeles, where he opens the Maple Bar, an upscale joint, which also features a casino and bordello upstairs. He very quickly sets out owning Los Angeles, the Los Angeles political establishment, just like he did in Seattle. And luckily, his bar is frequented by the city's ruling elite. Um, There's local politicians, judges, all of them showing up. And Charles makes himself very available to these men, and they love him. He's a real bon vivant type. He dresses flashy. He wears big diamond rings. And he's always there to listen and help. When people have a problem, a common refrain is, see Charlie about it. Uh, He also has some qualities that made a few people underestimate his bad side. Now, this case has a lot of what we always talk about with old newspaper cases. (laughs) Very weird (laughs) descriptions and really dogging people like you would never see today, I don't think. No, the old newspaper articles were so bitchy. They're so bitchy in the way they talk about people, specifically their physical appearances. Well, the funny thing is you would think they'd be boring, but it's like 
it's actually very entertaining in a way because you're like, can't believe what you're reading sometimes. Oh, it is unbelievable. Some of the stuff that got printed, it seems like even though this, you know, this is like the Los Angeles times, like these reputable news sources, right? These like famous newspapers, but they're like, he was an ugly, <laughs> he was an ugly fellow yeah. with pock marks on his face. The jury gasped when his face was, it's just yeah. like so awful. Yeah. Well, the LA Times described him as follows. Although physically imposing, Crawford had an effeminate voice and an Adam's apple that bobbed uncontrollably. His notorious viciousness and cunning helped that helped take public corruption to a new level in Los Angeles city government in the 1920s. So anyone who was fooled into thinking this guy was not vicious based on his infamous high-pitched voice, which is mentioned all the time in these articles, they would soon be very sorry they fucked with him. It's not surprising that he became a model for some of Raymond Chandler's most colorful villains in his books. Wow. So he gets a few nicknames. He is nicknamed the Grey Wolf of Spring Street, Good Time Charlie. And by 1920, he's heading up his own crime syndicate that's known as the City Hall Gang. Now, things really go next level when Crawford's friend and political um, dealmaker, Kent Kane Parrott, a former USC football star, he kind of was like, hey, I think this guy, Georgie Cryer, he'd be a great candidate for mayor and he'd totally be in our pocket. So they set out to get this guy elected and they succeed defeating incumbent mayor Meredith Pinky Snyder. Now he sounds corrupt too, but he's not. <laughs> well, he's not there corrupt. Well, his, his nickname is Pinky. You don't have a nickname like Pinky <laughs> if you're an up and up mayor. <laughs> I'm sorry. George Cryer? That sounds like the, the legit mayor. George Cryer sounds like the uh, the pathetic, but by <laughs> very by-the-book mayor. Yes, but no. He's the corrupt one, but I guess that's why he's a crier. <laughs> they, they got him. He's easily, he's easily convinced. So Crawford kind of keeps his, clan, his hands clean here. Kent Kane Parrott basically is the de facto mayor. He even runs the LAPD. Like He just makes changes there even though he has no official position in the government. And Crawford keeps everyone's pockets lined. Parrot, him, and other cohorts, they run these city business meetings out of the Biltmore Hotel downtown. Some of the other goons in the gang, Joe and Bob Gans, they run the slot machine division. Zeke Caress, he does the bookmaking and betting operation. And Guy Stringbean McAfee. Come on. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> <laughs> you got to be really intimidating to get to to get like a name like that, right? Right. It's We're, like being named Tiny. Absolutely. You got to be a big guy. This guy's super corrupt, and he's a former LAPD police officer. Oh, wow! <laughs> Two things that never go together. <laughs> Who would have thought? He ends up running the casinos and gambling section of this crime syndicate. Now he was re- he was fired from the LAPD in 1917 for running a crap game in the police assembly room. He gets reassigned. He gets reinstated and assigned to the vice squad. Oh, and he, right. And then cops, other officers start noticing that every time they're about to have a big raid, he gets on the phone and whistles. And then the evidence has mysteriously to be disappeared by the time they get there. I just picture him like. <laughs> just one of those like creepy whistles. He's this is string bean. Yes, he's string the bean. he's former LAPD. Yes. Oh, so Crawford also brings in one of his old Seattle guys, Marco Albori, aka Albert Marco. He's in charge of prostitution. Uh, Crawford has sixty five bordellos in LA, so Damn. he's doing a lot of business. Um, Alboro is a classic gangster, pinstripe suits. He lives hard, he gambles hard, he fucks hard. Um, but Albori got a, things a little too hot for Crawford. He loses $260,000 playing cards. That's like millions of dollars yeah. back then. With uh, Nick the Greek Dandalos, he gets drunk and goes to the ship's cafe in Venice Beach. There he shoots a man uh, and is victim and convicted of assault and attempted murder and then gets deported back to Sicily. <gasps> do, 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 do. No, wait, this is... This is Marco, Albert Marco, a.k.a. Marco Albori. This is another one of Crawford's cohorts. Yes. I feel like... So the Ship's Cafe was at an a, something called the Abbot Kinney... Um, 
dock or like pier? We've talked about the yes. ship's cafe. Okay, I thought so. This was the place that Ala Nazimova yes. slapped Valentino, right? Didn't she slap yes. him? That's that's what I was like. I was like, this place is familiar because we're like, <laughs> we got to do a story about Valentino or whatever. We did she slap him? Something happened there with another she, guy too, right? I don't think she slapped him. I think she snubbed him. I think she said something real like she was she was like fuck you basically to him. Yes. So this is like a place I think people went and got fucked up and had had some altercations. Yeah. It seems like a, a place. This was a popular fight and destination and it was literally a ship docked yes. on the pier with a restaurant inside. And it's a classic, what you might think is a steak and chop place. Mm-hmm. They got a lot of oysters, fish. Um, it's that kind of place. And yeah, it's there's actually a lot of information on this place. So it might be worth delving into at some point, yeah. diving into at some point, because it seems like a lot went down here. And it's usually hard to find old menus. And this was like everywhere, yeah. and pictures and whatever, because I think it, it was around for a while as well. We definitely took a detour in our Ala, one of our Ala Nazimova episodes, and we talked about the menu. So by the late 1920s, the newspapers were like, we should start criticizing all this corruption <laughs> in the city government. And the, the tension was intense. The guy, Cryer, he's like, I'm not running for re-election. And in 1929, a new reform-minded mayor comes into office, which is exactly what happened in Seattle, uh, because when the reform mayor comes in, he is down on Charlie. He's trying to get him for things. And in 1929, he does get charged with framing a city councilman named Carl Engel Jacobson. Now, wait, who gets charged? Charlie? Charlie Crawford is charged with framing Carl Engel Jacobson. Uh, They say that he conspired with five police officers and others to arrest the councilman on a trumped up morals charge. Now, Jacobson is a real nerd. He is a vice crusader. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and basically he refused to be bribed, so they went after him. Yeah. He gets but he helps them out because he does get caught in a room with a woman in alcohol and he is charged with entering a room for immoral purposes, <laughs> which is an incredible charge. <laughs> At the trial, he's like, Okay, I did have an immoral interest in the woman, but I never acted upon it. He also says he refused the offer of a drink. The lights went out, and then somebody hit him on the head, um, and he was unconscious. The charges do eventually get dropped because the woman finally admits that she was being bribed by Albert Marco, we talked about before. He's back in Sicily now. Yeah. And he had been paying her a weekly stipend to, to, to like do this lie, and then he went back to Sicily. The payment stopped, so she told everything, basically. Yeah. That's what happened. So the charges against Crawford, though, are also dropped. They, they don't follow through on this. In 1930, he gets indicted for bribery in connection with um, a security scandal involving the Julian Petroleum Company. They allege that he um, conspired with some other commissioner to kind of get bribes in exchange for like oil company favors. Those charges eventually are dismissed as well because the government's main witness refused to testify. Yeah. We don't know why. Mm. (laughs) Now, he eventually sort of escapes the heat. He goes to Europe for a little bit. In his absence, the syndicate starts to be run by McAfee, and some people suspect his wife, Ella, who a lot of people believe was really the power behind her husband's like throne. So Charlie Crawford goes to Europe to escape the heat. Yes. And Ella stays behind in L.A. and is alleged to have been running the syndicate. With McAfee. With string string bean. bean. (laughs) With old string bean. He returns and manages to have all the charges against him dropped. He's toned down his flashy wardrobe. And he opens up an insurance and real estate office on Sunset Boulevard. He claims that he's found God now with the help of his wife. He gets baptized and admitted into St. Paul's Presbyterian Church. The pastor there is a man named Reverend Gustav Briegleb, and he's actually deeply involved in the chicken coop murder case. (gasps) He was the defender of Christine Collins, the mom in that case, which we'll cover at some point, but just another interesting connection. On the day of his baptism, he places a ring set with two large diamonds and valued at $3,500 in the collection plate. This becomes like a huge news story. 
Accompanying the ring is a note from him asking the pastor, um, or sorry, the reverend to sell the ring and use the proceeds to build a parish house. In November of 1930, he gifts the church $25,000 to build a parish house that would be named after his mom, Amelia. The press are obviously on top of this and they're like, oh, very funny that all this conversion happens when all these charges are coming down on you. But the reverend defends him. He's like, the $25,000 gift was not announced until after some of the bribery charges were dismissed. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) just FYI. Crawford also funds a radio show for Reverend Briglieb. Um, They basically use this show to kind of attack McAfee, who is now sort of running things. And maybe, uh, you know, Charles is not too happy about this. And other people he used to uh, be down with. He also starts a magazine called Critic of Critics and hires his friend Herbert Spencer to be the editor. But privately, he's kind of up to his same old tricks. Critic of Critics is basically a way of him kind of targeting city officials with like um, scandal and gossip and all of this kind of allegations and such. Many start wondering if his conversion is legitimate. Has Charles truly left the world of organized crime? Unfortunately for him, whether or not that's true, the world of organized crime had not left him. We'll take a break and we'll tell you what happened. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Just because the holidays are over doesn't mean I've stopped shopping. I'm still at it. And whenever I'm looking to buy something, I start with Rakuten. Rakuten is the smartest way to save money when you shop because you can earn cash back. You can earn cash back on things like clothing and shoes, toys and games, electronics, and kitchen or home essentials. You are already shopping, so why not get some cash back? There are over 3,700 stores where you can get cash back across every single category, including some of my favorites like Zappos, Sephora, and of course, Wine.com. Rakuten has 17 million members who are already saving. In fact, Rakuten members have earned over $4.6 billion in cash back so far. Membership is free and it's easy to sign up. Just get the free Rakuten app or download the free browser extension or both. So start all your shopping at Rakuten.com or get the Rakuten app today and start saving. Your cash back really adds up. On May 20th, 1931, Charles Crawford was at his bungalow office at 6665 Sunset Boulevard. There were several other offices at this location, uh, which he actually owned. The office looked like what you might expect from a crime kingpin. Dark wood paneling, multiple phones, a panic button, locks and steel bars on the doors, and a giant safe along a back wall. The office was also wired for him to record things that were happening. At around 4 p.m. in the afternoon, Crawford was meeting with Herbert Spencer, the other, the editor of his little bitchy magazine. <laughs> <laughs> around 4.30 p.m., witnesses heard shots ring out. A few moments later, they saw a well-dressed man calmly walk out of the office and get into a car with a blonde woman. When rescue workers arrived, Spencer was dead, and 52-year-old Crawford was still barely hanging on to life. He had a bullet that ruptured his liver and one kidney. He was rushed to the hospital and quickly joined by his wife, Ella, who arrived with Bible in hand. A detective asked Charlie who shot him, and he said with a smile, I don't know, why didn't you ask Spencer? (gasps) Crawford reportedly told police that if he had to die, the secret of who shot him would go to the grave with him. And that's what happened. He was asked again who shot him. He had put on another big smile and then died. Wow. So at the time of his death, a newspaper starts investigating, investigating his finances. They found out that Crawford was 
the own, he had like jewelry and other assets that were $280,000 worth $280,000. That's like $6 million today. Yeah. As well as multiple real estate holdings, including the house that he had in Beverly Hills with his wife and this entire block along Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood. His funeral is a huge event. It's covered in great detail by the press. It's conducted at the St. Paul's Presbyterian Church. And the church held three, um, I'm sorry, 1,000 people, but more than 6,000 people show up for the funeral. Um, he had a silver bronze casket that was over $15,000, which is crazy. And obviously thousands of dollars of flowers, wreaths, uh, all that kind of shit. Now, <laughs> Reverend Breglib delivers the eulogy and he's literally crying the whole time. Wow. He's got his tears coming. He calls Crawford a true friend, and he said the funeral was the most difficult task he's ever had to face in his 25 years as a minister. He later gets criticized because he compares the life of Charlie Crawford to that of the apostle Matthew. He's like, well, Matthew began life as Levi the politician, too. So he also had a bad past. And he said the conversion of Crawford was identical uh, to what, what Matthew went through. He was also criticized by the press, or he criticized the press for its coverage of Crawford's death, saying, we ought to let the dead sleep. And he also responded to criticism about taking gifts from such a notorious person, saying, if you know any more sinners who have $25,000, send them along. I can use it. <laughs> like, we love... We love a priest who admits they're money hungry, <laughs> greedy bitches. <laughs> you gotta, I mean, at least it's at better least, than the alternative. At least he's admitting it. So obviously cops have a description of this assailant. Nothing comes of it. And most people assumed it's just another mob related hit and didn't really have any hope of the case being solved. But then something unexpected happened. The murderer came forward. Wow. Several weeks after the shootings, David H. Clark, a corrupt former district attorney and current candidate for judge, turned himself into the police and admitted that he had shot Charlie Crawford and Spencer. Known as Handsome Dave, Clark had prosecuted Crawford's pal, Abori, the guy who was back in Sicily. Um, but he was not that great of a guy either. The prosecutor in the eventual trial even said that there were three racketeers in the bungalow that day. Uh, Handsome Dave did turn himself in, but refused to withdraw from his race for judge. That's he, bold. <laughs> he does eventually lose, but gets 60,000 votes. And for a, no one votes for judge, because none of us know who the hell they are. So we're kind of like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> so 60,000 is a lot of votes yeah. for judge. Yeah. So his version of what happened is that Spencer threatened to have him killed if Dave Clark continued his attacks on the underworld during his campaign for judge. After several threats, Clark claims that Crawford invited him to a meeting to fix things with Spencer. He was afraid this was a trap. So on his way to the meeting, Dave Clark buys a gun. Uh, we know this because he overdrew his bank account to buy this gun. And he says that when he got there, Crawford asked him to take chief of police uh, Steckel to the beach on a certain night and frame the chief for some crime. If he did this, they would ensure that he won his judge election. And Clark claims that he refused to participate in the scheme, threatened to expose Charlie Crawford, that he, he hadn't been a changed man. He is a piece of shit still. And he called Crawford, quote, a dirty lowdown skunk. Skunk? To his face. <laughs> Crawford didn't like that. And yeah. he pulled a gun on him. A scuffle followed. And he says that he shot Spencer and Crawford in self-defense. I can't believe someone actually used that terminology. A low down dirty skunk. The, <laughs> Sorry. This is a skunk. Like cause he smells. I feel like I've heard that before. It's not really commonly used anymore. You dirty oh, that's dirty rat. Yeah. Man, you low down dirty skunk. I don't know. <laughs> I don't think I've ever I'd be heard mad that. too. <laughs> There's only one problem. The police found no guns in Crawford's office. Uh, he did have an empty shoulder holster. And the only thing they found on him was a cigar in his hand, not a gun. Did he point the cigar at him? Yeah. <laughs> he like, hey. Boom, boom. <laughs> uh, 
The DA alleged that the shooting was actually an assassination and Clark was acting at McAfee's, uh, you know, demand. Others attributed the killings to a struggle over the spoils in that Julian stock affair, like they were fighting over money. Ella Crawford becomes a sort of media darling at this point. She's a now she's now obviously alone. She has two small daughters, Eleanor and Joan Crawford, not the actress. <laughs> Um, she's a very frail looking woman. She's got blonde hair. She's, she's in her thirties. So she's a bit younger than her husband who is like an old school 52. Yeah. Where so you see he him, looks like, real bad. He looks real old. Um, so she's got these two little girls to raise and she famously makes a statement, um, to the press after Clark confesses. She says, I bear no malice in my heart toward anyone. I do not believe in capital punishment. I believe that it is against the commandments of God to take a human life. I think the murderer of my husband should be treated as any other criminal. She, this was like a huge deal. There's like hundreds of articles on her being anti-death penalty. Really? Yes. It was like, I guess it was just very like shocking. Like she wouldn't want her husband's killer killed. Um, so she's like becomes a regular in the press. She's constantly defending her husband's honor. Um, there's two trials coming up because these two thing these two murders will be tried separately. And she wasn't the only one using the press to kind of garner uh, sympathy for her side. Dave and his wife Nancy, who is described by the newspapers as histrionic, <laughs> <laughs> she I think she was also the blonde woman in the car. Um, they both go to the press constantly with their stories. Nancy's giving interviews and Dave does this thing where he like invites the press to the cell to watch him play poker with other accused murderers. So they're like exclusive in the cell with the murderer. It's like this kind of stuff doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. Uh, his trial for the murder of Herbert Spencer begins in August of 1931 and is attended by quote, the largest throng ever to attend a trial in Los Angeles. Reporters make daily commentary on what the two widows wear to court, how they react, are they sobbing, are they too reserved, what does it all mean? When Ella testifies, they talk about how she took the stand in a black silk two-piece suit with a touch of color at the throat. <laughs> she speaks in a clear voice with calm blue eyes. A key piece of evidence in this case is whether or not Charles had a gun on him. Both West of, both widows testified to this point. Spencer's widow is described on the stand uh, when she comes to the stand, like she's crying and the, the LA times says she's a pathetic figure. Damn. It's just so mean. It's like, yeah, her husband's dead. Yeah. She's pretty sad. Uh, she goes on, um, the stand and she tells this sad story about how the day of the murder, she was waiting for her husband to take her to the beauty shop. Uh, the prosecutor asked her, does he ever show up? And she, <laughs> she's like, no. <laughs> Wait, just like, why are you asking that? You know he didn't show up, bitch. (laughs) So mean. She then explains how she went home when he didn't show up, and she realized something had happened because reporters were surrounding her house. And she said she went uh, into the bedroom. Her husband did have a gun that he carried with him every day for twenty years because he was a former police corruption reporter, so he was scared. Um, but that day she went inside the house and saw the gun still under his pillow. So he didn't take the he gun. He did with not him. take the gun. Ella claimed under oath that Charles had also not taken the gun with him that day, taken a gun with him that day. When asked how she knew, she smiled and was rolling a bit of paper between her fingers when she said, He embraced me when he left home. He always did before he left me. And if he had been wearing a revolver, I would have felt it. Damn, Ella. <laughs> she got a little horny on stand. Uh, and we love it. On August 24th, the jury came back with a not guilty verdict. Spencer's widow called the trial a farce, and Ella released the following statement uh, two days later. She said, "The close of the trial, as I was coming as oh, sorry, at the close of the trial, as I was coming out of the building called the Hall of Justice, thinking of the injustice expressed by the verdict in the trial involving the slaying of my husband, I stepped across the street and was confronted by an inscription on an old building that had been erected many years past." It read, it's not your battle, but God's. So as far as I'm concerned, District Attorney Fitz need not put on any more burlesque shows in in the trial of my (gasps) husband's slayer. In these times of depression, it would be far better if taxpayers could be saved the cost of another futile gesture, such as 
just completed. In the trial, the memory of my husband was besmirched and a halo placed over the head of his slayer. Against the forces of evil and hypocrisy, which now control the city, even reaching into pulpits to spread false rumors and reports and into official circus circles to pervert justice, a lone woman cannot prevail. It must indeed be a dull, conscious, and complacent public which can view unconcerned the farcical conduct and outcome of this case. Sadly enough, it is not the first, nor will it be the last, if justice is to continue to be administered by such hands. Only a few months ago, gangsters shot and hopelessly crippled an honest policeman doing his duty and attempting to arrest criminals. They were defended by the same attorney who defended Clark. They put on the same kind of self-defense story that used, they used in this case, and a jury of American citizens acquitted the gangsters. So widows are robbed of their husbands, children robbed of their fathers, mothers robbed of their sons, and this is called justice. Damn. She's like, don't bother. Yeah. Because it's uh, this, you guys are all corrupt pieces of shit, too. And she fights publicly with the DA like day, up until days before the second trial does start. There's another trial? Yes. For her husband. For her husband. Because he wasn't convicted of He's, her. This is just for Herbert Spencer. Yes. Okay. So on September 16th, she writes another angry letter right before the trial starts, accusing the prosecutor, um, Joseph Ford, of asking for money from her to like stop to do something. I'm not quite sure what she was saying. She said Fitz and Ford dragged her husband's name through the mud. They mounted a half-assed prosecution. And obviously the prosecution denies the money, saying that they asked for money, and claim that they have used every resource available to them to get another to get a conviction. The second trial obviously starts, and Ford opens up the trial by telling the jurors that Clark has a handsome face and a fine physique, but I am afraid he has lost his soul. So these guys love talking about how hot this guy is. Yeah. And like, just because he's hot doesn't mean he didn't do it. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, I respect that. Yeah. It's like, don't be fooled. This is why I'm not a prosecutor. Because that would be exactly the kind of opening statement I would make. Totally. I'd be like, this guy's really hot, but he's definitely the killer. (laughs) You guys, come on. Let's not be swayed. (laughs) We've all been there. (laughs) And he, look, I don't, I'm not saying he's not hot, but he's definitely hot for that era. Like an an Errol, like Flynn type. Yeah. He's got like the little thin mustache. uh, And he's definitely hotter than Charlie Crawford. Which is why in our... Um, Gower Gulch episode, The Handsome Criminal, I was taken aback by how actually hot that guy was. Yes. When everyone was, and everyone in the newspapers was calling him like the hottest robber alive. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then we see a picture of him and he's actually hot. Yes. I mean, here's a picture. I'll show you. He's like that type, right? Do you see what I'm saying? He totally looks like, like Errol mm. Flynn, kind of. He's total that type, which was big back then. Not my type. He's, I like the hot robber, though. The hot robber was my type. Um, so just as Ella feared, 11 of the 12 jurors voted to acquit Clark. There was one juror who voted guilty, and he he had a bomb on his front lawn the next day. Wow. So who knows what's going on there? Now, I do want to say... With the DA or Clark? No, the juror. The who juror. voted guilty. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that's fucked. Yeah. Now, I do have a little addendum to Handsome Dave. Okay. In 1954, he he gets charged with second-degree murder for shooting the wife of his friend and one-time law partner, and he basically shot her because he was sick of her nagging his friend to get a job. What? <laughs> that is literally the lead in the LA Times story. <laughs> what? Yes. Okay, so this guy... So, wow. I bet the juror who had the bomb threat was like, see, (laughs) this guy's crazy. He's crazy. I was like, I couldn't believe it because I was like, it wasn't even a heated thing. He just like went outside one day and shot her. He had had it. (laughs) Oh, my God. Uh, He goes to Chino State Prison and he does die in prison. He has a stroke at age 55. So that's the end of Handsome Dave. Wow. Um, So after the trial, Ella pretty quickly rushes into a second marriage with a San Francisco real estate dude named Roy Smith. They meet in September and marry in January of the following year. 
Um, she actually is still a little bit of a press darling. She poses for the camera. They take pictures of this newlywed. And she says, we found we had so much in common and the romance grew naturally. I'm so happy to have had the love of two such men as Mr. Crawford and Mr. Smith. The marriage is over very quickly <laughs> after. No shit. Now, that marriage fails, and she begins to focus all of her attention into carrying on her husband's real estate empire. She claims she thought to herself, by golly, life is going fast here, and I need to get stuff done. But uh, she still owns this murder bungalow. She begins fantasizing, fantasizing about turning lemons into lemonade, As many in Hollywood had done before her, she wants to create a fantasy to replace this most tragic moment of her life, whitewashing over the stain. And so begins the project, Crossroads of the World, something that would cost $12,000, which seems like so little. I know. The uh, The haunted bungalow where the murder happens gets torn down and construction begins at the end of May 1936. The grand opening on October 29th is just kitsch as hell. I told you about the actors um, from all over the globe. They also have foreign councils there, folk singers, native dancers, world musicians, like all of this entertainment and tons of people come to this opening day event. Um, As I mentioned, we have the main building that looks like the cruise ship. And then we have all of these themes, like there is a Cape Cod style bungalow section. There is a European village with French, medieval English, and Italian architecture. And then there's a Moorish, Turkish, Spanish-influenced section that features hand-painted tiles, minarets, balconies, wood carvings. And all of these villages are connected by little entryways and passages, which create this real um, immersive experience. And they're shopping. Yes. The shops quickly fill up with everything Ella had dreamed of. Um, I found this huge ad for the opening where it lists all of the shops and things that are opening. So some of the things include Anne Herbert's hand-dipped chocolates, mm. um, Marcy de Paris perfumes and powders, Mildred Asher, who specializes in peasant houses, gardens. <laughs> Their ad said, for that provincial feeling. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> it just seemed like a shop that could exist today. Yeah. Um, there was... <laughs> Provincial, it, that's what there is obviously um, a Shanghai Oriental art sort of shop um, selling like chinoiserie. Yes, selling. I think there was like a kimono shop. Mm. Um, there was someone called Burr Macintosh who built himself as the cheerful philosopher. I have no idea what his shop was. There was a puppeteer. There was a community theater. How big is this fucking place? I haven't been there. I've never been inside, but obviously I have driven past this place a million times. Well, because the globe is very (laughs) noticeable. But looking at pictures right now, like Google pictures, this is wild. There's like, this looks like a little Tudor style little house inside. Like Like there's still all this theme stuff. Yeah. In here. Yeah. And like the architecture is very, it still looks like it's like very nautical on the outside, but then there's all this shit inside and it's outdoors. It's an outdoor, yeah. No, I think that in the boat is a Toshin bookstore. Okay. Um, so is there like any. I'll get into what okay. happens. Um, so there's also art, a lot of art studios. She wanted to have like an art, you know, art experience for people. And there's also a theater. So um, there's a re- there's several restaurants. There's a restaurant that's on the top level of the ship. And then there's also a restaurant that had a huge ad in there, um, in the ad, the thing I saw. And it said, the reopening of a bit of Sweden, <laughs> from formerly of South Vermont. <laughs> <laughs> Why do I feel like... <laughs> Why do I feel like a bit of Sweden of Vermont Avenue closed for a very good reason? Well, Why? they're back, baby. They're back. <laughs> the bit of Sweden is, is back. In the ad, it says they feature typical and exclusive Swedish dishes. Exclusive? I like typical. Yeah. That doesn't sound, that's like not great phrasing, right? You could say classic. classic you wouldn't or, say typical. Why did they say typical? 
So I did find a menu. Okay. This is for a big anniversary year. Uh, it for doesn't, Sweden. For a bit of Sweden. A bit of Sweden. <laughs> now, they did say there were some other a bit of restaurants, but I couldn't find any other information because I was like, I would love if it was like a bit of France. Yeah. It was like all these. I was like, I would go here. Oh, yeah. For sure. Oh, yeah. So this was um, a prefix menu. Obviously, we start with a smorgasbord. <laughs> <laughs> Not again. <laughs> Not again. We got the, and they, they described this as Swedish hors d'oeuvres in case you didn't know. And then you have some entree cho- choices that include sweet bread, Swedish beefsteak, roast Long Island duck. And then, well, that's not Swedish. It's from Long Island. That's what I was thinking. And then you can also get Yankee pot roast. That's not very that's Swedish. <laughs> There's a crepe, crepe a la bit of Sweden. That's Swedish. <laughs> Orange sorbet, vanilla ice cream, cheese and crackers. Fartaforta. Say that again. Photo. Photo fartaforta. Do it again. Sound it out. Photo horta. Photo horta torta. Sound it out, Desi. Photo horta torta. What I, I can't read it. Well, look it up. What is it? I can't. It's a little. Um, can you read it? Yeah, let me see. <laughs> it's a little blurry. That's the problem. Okay. Do you see? Forta Horta Torta. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Why is this the most blurry menu? Because I had to, I had to like. Forta Horta Borgen Torta. Yeah. I mean, I, that sounds good. Iced Honeydew Melon. That sounds really good right mm, now. That sounds good right now, for sure. Swedish deep dish. Wait, deep steak? Deep beef steak. Beef steak. <laughs> deep steak. That's wait a, a minute. That's a classic sex move. Um, wh- what kind of dessert is this? I couldn't. I can't even spell it to look it up. And I tried putting variations in. I think it's a torta. Well, a tort. <laughs> some kind of tort. I here's 15 traditional Swedish desserts. I'm trying to see if there's anything. I wish the menu wasn't so blurry because then, I know. We, then we could. Then we could possibly. I couldn't possibly read it until I expanded it. it. You know how it's like um, an eBay auction. Yeah, so the like picture is really bad. Ugh! Always take clear pictures, on, guys. If it's going to be of a menu, you know we're going to blow it up to read on on air. <laughs> um, a bit of Sweden. <laughs> I I'm kind of obsessed with this place right now. First of all, I would love to go to a Swedish restaurant. I like uh, I like a few Swedish dishes for sure. Yeah. I like a princess cake. Well, I like Swedish duh. meatballs. Sweden makes my all-time favorite cake, which yeah. is, which is so princess cake. They've got some good desserts. I like a rye. I'm not into so many smoked fishes, but I might have a little on some rye toast. I like a Swedish pancake. I like, Ooh, yeah. I like a lingonberry. Oof, love a lingonberry. So There's a you, lot of info about this restaurant. Like There's a lot of... A bit of Sweden? Yeah. Is it the same one? Yeah. Oh. A bit of Sweden. Oh, there's one in San Diego. See, I don't know if it's the same one, though, is it? Because I, I feel like there was another one in Boston, too, or, or like Massachusetts. Okay, I found a menu, and this menu has um, a Viking on the cover. <laughs> is it from the 1930s? <laughs> yeah, it's from 1938. Ooh, okay. A bit of Sweden. Hold on. Is it less blurry? Yeah, it's less blurry. What do we got? We got skull, which is <laughs> cocktails. The, the the first page is all the cocktails. Okay, wait. This is only there's like a whole fucking manifesto on the back page of like what a smorgasbord. Smorgasbord <laughs> <laughs> from Sweden with its rolling hills and birch fringed lakes. I mean, this is like a thousand words about smorgasbord. I would love to go to this restaurant. This place looks lit. No, I'm obsessed. Um, we no. should reopen it. We should re- <laughs> How can we buy a bit of Sweden franchise? How can we get in on this action? I would love this. I'm only a little bit Swedish, too. This would be great. Yeah. No, I mean, there's not enough Swedish restaurants. There's not enough Swedish restaurants. We've got Swedish listeners, too. I know, because Swedes, a lot of Swedes speak English. Yeah. We get 
we've gotten several emails and I think our numbers are pretty big there when I looked one time. They are. Randomly. And it you was know what? Crazy. I cannot wait to visit Sweden. Me too. I've do always wanted show. to go. Same. I've always, always wanted, wanted to, go. to go. So I'm excited. Um, and I'm really, I feel like we got to open up this restaurant. It's what LA is missing. It's really what LA is missing. You only have Ikea. We only have... I was at Ikea yesterday. That's the only place you can get Swedish food. (laughs) I'm going to look into... I'm going to try and find a non-blurry menu. We could read it on an after show. And we'll read it on an after show. Anyway, so Ella really... She realized her dream. She gave new life to this place of death. And she really wanted to give something to the world. She said... This is like taking a trip around the world. You can come here and when you come to LA, you expect to see something beautiful and unusual due to the fact that it's the motion picture industry here. And that's what she seemed to want to give people, this Mm. real experience. It sounds amazing. I would love to go to something like this, Uh, even if it's tacky. I don't care. Yeah, I live for something like this. She never gets married again, and she does pass away in 1953. Her obituary describes her as the widow of Charles H. Crawford, former building and loan official. <laughs> so uh, he, was you know, little, he was a little more than why, that. You know, give him some credit. <laughs> he was a corrupt person who was very successful at it. <laughs> he, he, she's married to this colorful man. Yeah. He'd be proud. Um, so what became of crossword, Crossroads over the years? Obviously, during the war, imports sharply declined, so many of the shops at Crossroads, crossroads had no choice but to go out of business. The bungalows then kind of got filled by non-retail entities, including charitable organizations, such as Herbert Hoover's Care, what he cares about, and some theatrical organizations that were sort of devoted to caring for Hollywood's... Um, a lot of people weren't working at the time. We'd like to thank you, yeah. Herbert Hoover. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's the villain of Annie. He's the villain of Annie <laughs> for good reason. And, and in real life, mm-hmm. in 1949, something called the Maskers Club uh, took some space there. And I looked this place up. They were uh, a group founded in Hollywood by actors to offer love, loyalty, and support to other actors who were struggling. They would make um, films and pre- release them to raise money for people who needed help you know, paying bills or were suffering through financial difficulties through World War II. Um, and they provided service people with free meals and entertainment as well. Uh, they offered different classes. But what was most interesting to me was in December of 1949 at the crossroads, they held classes for um, people who needed work over the holiday seasons. They had a school for Santa Clauses. <laughs> they, what? Taught, they taught the actors... How to portray St. Nicholas <laughs> at stores, parades, and malls, or whatever they had back then. Classes included psychology, first aid, holiday music, interfaith questions, Christmas legends, makeup, and fire prevention. That's so cool. Santa has a lot of things he's responsible for. You, I, you never know. I love the idea that they have some queen there who teaches you how to do Santa drag. I'm living for the psychology too. Yeah. <laughs> like the kids, like these kids coming in, their dad died in the war, whatever you have to deal with, yeah. why they can't have presents that year or something Ugh. like that. It must, it's a hard job. Yeah. I think I thought that was really interesting. The property obviously changes hands a bunch of times in the following years. It gets really run down and becomes kind of like a kitschy space that people who don't appreciate find embarrassing and kind of tacky, but I love it. Here's what I want to know. Can we do a live show at the crossroads? <laughs> we got to go investigate. So in 1965, a guy named Thomas Wilner buys it and he's like, oh, I'm the craziest man in construction. He buys it for a million bucks and starts this refurb campaign. It's not successful. By the end of the 60s, it's sort of really trashy and full of more seedy types. People are sleeping in the hallways. There's a recording studio. Pretty famous musicians are hanging around, though, including um, Jackson Brown, Crosby, Steels, and Nash, and Young. Don't forget Young. <laughs> They're doing drugs and whatnot. <laughs> little vagabonds. Uh, Morton Lacretz buys it in 1977, and he begins another round of renovations, kicking out all the deadbeats, and basically turns it into a, a fucking office building. 
Um, what a bummer. They still own it today from what I saw, the last article I saw. And now, as I mentioned, their big tenant is the high-end bookstore or book publisher, Tashin. They're in that Ocean Liner building. Um, but I do have a little addendum that is of interest to us. John Holmes, this is where he went when he basically started his um, porno movie career. In the late 1960s, as you might remember from our episode, he's recovering from a collapsed lung. (laughs) I'm sure that's on the top of your mind. He goes to a playing like a card club in Gardena and he meets a photographer there while they're pissing next to each other. And he gives um, John Holmes his business card and he's like, oh, you, you could probably make a business in the adult film industry. And he goes and follows up on it. Um, this is an interview with a man named Bill Amerson. He says, I first met John Holmes in 1969 while casting for some still work, mag- still work magazine at Crossroads of the World on Sunset Boulevard. We had an open casting call. It was towards the end of the day and he walked in, tall, skinny, very skinny kid with a sort of Afro haircut. He didn't look like the type of male model we could use for our nude photo shoots. My business partner said, anyway, take him to the back room and take, have him take his clothes off to take some Polaroid snapshots of him. Just say thank you very much and send him on his way. And that was that. We went into the back room. He undressed. I set up my camera. When he turned around... <laughs> I took one look at the size and the length of his appendage. Before I even took the first photo, I said to him, you're going to be a star. And that's how I met John Holmes. So yeah, this began their business venture together. They worked together for the next 20 years. Uh, I'm sure that was a wild ride for this poor guy who just is like, you got a big dick. (laughs) Maybe he's a bad guy too. I can't remember. Um, Anyway, yeah, that's where he went when he kind of started his career was at Crossroads of the World. Because a lot of porn, um, I don't know, producers or photographers moved into those office spaces at some point when it was like the seedy years. Interesting. And yeah, so now, yeah, I don't think anything much is going on there. We got to open up a little bit of sweet. (laughs) Get this place back on its feet. See you at the crossroads. It's kind of amazing it still exists. Yeah, I mean, that is one of the great things about Los Angeles is that even when a building is like virtually useless, I appreciate that our city will still keep it up if it's weird looking. Sometimes. Sometimes. Yeah. But I like that. So it is that. weird to see it. But I like one. Of course. But one of the great things about LA is like how much preserved architecture of the mm-hmm. past is still up and signs, like signage. There's so many old signs that are still erected. Well, that's why the LA Conservancy Group is such a great place. They do a ton of stuff. I've gone to many things uh, through them, including um, shows at the Palace Theaters, downtown LA, which are incredible. Um, But yeah, you should check out their website because they have a lot of information on all these old buildings. And they do get, this place did get registered as a historical site at some point. I can't remember when. It's honestly kind of ugly, (laughs) but I do appreciate that it still exists. I, it's ugly in a way I wouldn't accept with other architecture, but for what it was, yeah. it's tacky. It's tacky. I'm glad it exists. That architecture style too is so funny. The one that looks like the ocean liners. I'm not into it. <laughs> it's I'm, not cool. You know what's so funny about it? And maybe it's just because the 1980s had a big deco revival. And yes. It, it's, it, it looks 80s. Yes, those rounded corners the with round- the portholes. <laughs> yeah, the rounded corners. <laughs> the 80s loved a nautical theme. No, it's very, it, you're right, it's very 80s. And there's something about it where it's like, there's not. There's no way you're getting enough light in that building, right? Because yeah. those portholes, <laughs> you must feel sick in a building like that. <laughs> yeah, Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I can't imagine why would you why is, you would want that. It's so bad. The storefronts did have huge bay windows, though, to kind of display whatever the merchandise. But yeah, I mean, I think together thematically it works, but I don't want to see a building like that out without the other shops. Yeah. It (laughs) needs the other shops. So we need to get this place back um, on track to be cool again. Yeah. I want to... Tashin can stay. 
Tashin. What better place to go with Tashin than a Swedish meatball place? Yeah. I don't even... What Tashin is... Where's that from? It sounds kind of... It sounds European. It It sounds European. We love it. But... Okay. Now I want to go to that bookstore, though. This is unrelated, but it has to do with, like, really ugly but kind of incredible architecture in Los Angeles. Do you... Have you ever... Okay. When you're... Have you ever driven on Pico in crossing from like past Cheviot Hills on Pico where you're right about to like go into Beverly Wood. Yeah. And there's that dental office (laughs) and it's literally, it's like from the eighties and they haven't changed it. And it's a giant tube of toothpaste on the side of the building squirting out toothpaste and the toothpaste spells the name of the dental office. I don't think I've seen that because I would remember it. It is crazy. I think it's called Cats. Cats is or something. (laughs) I love it. It is nuts. When I worked in Santa Monica many, many years ago, whenever I'd be driving home, like I would sometimes like take Pico to get back to the east side. And I would pass it every every day. Oh my god! And like it was nuts. It's funny how many things can exist, but if you've just never gone down that road, you wouldn't even know, <laughs> I gotta, right? I got to. I need you. to see. I know people know what I'm talking. Some people who, oh, like, of course, know what I mean, I'm talking about. That sounds iconic. It's crazy, and I'm always was like jealous of people who went to that dental office. I mean, the thing about some of that '80s architecture is I don't personally like it, but I don't mind seeing it. No, I like. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't want my house to look like that. But. No, I'm not a fan of 80s architecture at all, but I love seeing it. Oh, yeah, me too. It's like whenever um, I would go to Long Beach Island over Ooh. the summer. Yeah. <laughs> there'd be like, you know, there'd be the beach houses that had been that had been there since like the 50s and 60s, but then you'd see these houses that were erected in the 80s and they just were like, did not go at all. With the rest of the beach houses yes. in the little town. and yes. But they were so fun to look at. Uh, it's fun. I mean, I like it. They're ugly as sin. I love ugly places. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll post some pictures. Definitely. So you can see. Uh, and that's that. Bye. Bye. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.